Okay, so you've been working in a sewer all day. You can decide why, I don't really care. But the point is, you are filthy. Your body is filthy, your clothes are filthy, it's bad. Now, imagine that the day is at an end, and you get out of the sewer, and you get home, and you want to get clean, and so what do you do? You go and take the longest, hottest shower you can possibly stand, right? And you you, you might wash two or three times because you want to be sure that nothing remains of the day's earlier activities. Once you've gotten out of the shower, how many of you would immediately put your dirty clothes back on? Doesn't that kind of make you go, you wouldn't do that. It's not wise to get clean and then put on the nasty clothes you got dirty in, right? Does it sound ridiculous to you then that I say to you that someone might actually put their dirty clothes on once they've gotten clean? We do it all the time. Now, I'm not talking about your physical clothes here, of course. At least, I really hope that you don't do that with your physical clothes. I do remember being a teenager and there was always a danger. But in general, I hope you don't do that with your physical clothes. But what I'm talking about here is something spiritual. See, though we've come to Jesus, and though we've been forgiven of our sins if we've come to Jesus, and though we've been made new if we came to Jesus, we often cover up our lives with the ugly practices of our former lives. We come to Jesus, we get washed by Him, we get cleansed by His grace, But then somehow we don't put off the deeds of the flesh. And today's passage is all about how to live, putting off the old, and living the new life that will glorify the Lord Jesus. And it especially has to do with ridding ourselves of actions and attitudes that cause ungodly division in the body of Christ, which is something God tells us to put off. So, if you're a note taker, there will be three points for you to write down. If not... Follow along. Point number one is this. Put off what makes you hurt others. First point is put off what makes you hurt others. I want to read for context verses 6 to the beginning of verse 9. Though it's 8 really in the beginning of verse 9. That's the point. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So, there's an important phrase here. It's at the beginning of verse 8. If you keep watching your Bible, you don't want to let that go. But now... And that little word now is really central. It indicates that a change has taken place. You know, a parent might say to their child, now that you have finished your homework, you can go out and play. Something happened to bring about a change. Well, in this passage, the now is spiritual. You used to walk in evil practices. You used to commit the sins that are bringing the wrath of God on the earth. But now things are, for you, 
different. But now you belong to Christ. But now you have been made clean by the blood of Jesus. But now you are a new creation, dead to sin, raised up to new life in Christ. So then the Bible says, now that you've been made new, Christian, what do you do? Put them all away. That word for put things away or lay them aside, it gives us the picture of taking off your dirty clothes, taking off garments. Now that Christ has made you clean, lay aside and do not put on again your old nasty clothes. Now that you're saved, there are certain spiritual garments that are dirty to you. And that you shouldn't wear. There are certain behaviors that should to be to a Christian what filthy clothes should be to a clean person. So what are we supposed to put away? That's really what we're getting to, right? What are we supposed to lay aside? There's a list of five things here just like we saw last week. And that list consists of things that hurt other people and that do harm to the unity of the church. By the way, it's interesting, I would say, that in the same breath that Paul talked about something as significant as sexual immorality and idolatry up in verse 5, he now speaks of attitudes and actions that cause division in the church. And that shows us that doing things to hurt the fellowship of the body of Christ is a very significant thing. So here we go. Let's look at the list and watch it build. It starts with laying aside anger and wrath. These are very similar concepts, but they're not identical. Anger is a word for a building, boiling, smoldering emotion. It's a slow build. And you know what this is like, don't you? To have something just stick in your craw, and it hangs with you. And and you want to get rid of it, maybe, but you just kind of feed it and let it simmer instead. You ever do that? You stew over an issue and let it build and build and build. Now, while we'll all get angry at times, we are not to cling to it. We are to do what we can to not let anger grow, especially if it's anger inside the church, if it's anger inside the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says... Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. You know, you who have taken part in our study of the book Unpacking Forgiveness, which we finished this morning, by the way, if you've been with us in that study, you understand we are to take action not to let anger boil in ourselves. We are to quickly, when we're hurt or offended by somebody else, recognize that we're not better than those who offended us. We've all sinned before God. We're all guilty of offenses greater than anything our minds could fathom because we have done wrong before a perfect, perfect God. But once we've grasped the fact that we are sinners just like those who hurt us, we can quickly and eagerly offer forgiveness to anybody who has offended us. Now... We may not be able to complete the forgiveness process, right? We talked about that even this morning in Sunday school. You may not be able to finish the process of forgiving somebody. That all has to do with whether they're willing to repent. 
But we put out the smoldering fire of anger when we willingly wrap up a gift of forgiveness that another person could unwrap if they were willing to repent. Now, the word anger, that first part in verse 8, that has to do with the slow boil. The word for wrath is a sudden explosion. This word points to the anger boiling over into hot action, right? Oftentimes, by the way, outbursts, angry outbursts, are fueled by the slow anger that you nurture instead of addressing or forgiving. The next word is malice. That's a word that has to do with an eagerness to do harm to another person. It's a word that means moral evil. And the pattern here is that as you let your anger grow and build and boil beneath the surface, it eventually erupts as you do or say something where you want to do harm to another. Thus, your anger leads you into malice, moral evil. You ever do that, by the way? You ever let something gnaw at you until all of a sudden words fly out of your mouth that you even wish you hadn't said, but you know when they came out of your mouth they were, they were intended to sting it? We do it. We spew forth venom from our mouths sometimes. Wanting to sting. Wanting to hurt. Wanting to poison another. It can come out of your mouth just as easily as it can come out of the mouth of any creature. Next is slander. Now here's what's interesting here. The Greek word behind that word for slander is the word where we get our word blasphemy from. Now, blasphemy is to speak something evil and untrue of God. Slander here is to speak something evil and untrue about another person. When we are offended by others, folks, have you ever noticed that it's easy for us to speak of them in a way that paints them in the worst possible light? And somehow, when we speak evil of others, we paint ourselves as the innocent victims who are only trying to mind their own business and do what's good. And those evil people over there, they're the ones who just wanted to do bad things. We are given to wanting to justify ourselves and to allow no wiggle room for others. And so we slander as we fail to see that the hearts of others, we fail to see anything good in the hearts of others, and all we do is we make them look bad and make ourselves look good. Last in this list of five is obscene talk or abusive speech. This, this word means just what it says, right? God's people are supposed to get rid of dirty or hurtful speech coming out of our mouths. You ever have words come out of your mouth that you don't think probably ought to? And yes, traffic counts. <laughs> Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Or Ephesians uh, 5 verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And James 3.10 simply says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Clearly, obscene, abusive speech is condemned in the Bible. And if you've got a foul mouth, if you've got a hurtful mouth, 
If your words are often used to hurt other people, God's word says you have to make a change. You cannot excuse your words. You can't say, oh, that was just a slip. You cannot assume that you're just blowing off a little steam or just words. They don't matter. No, no. This is a major issue in the Bible. We do not use public or private words to hurt others in the family of God. We don't hurt them by trying to smack them around emotionally with our tongues. We don't hurt people by trying to talk badly about them to others to make others like them less and like us more. That's not Christian behavior. Okay, we've seen the five words in the list. Watch the pattern, just like last week. There's a pattern that works here, right? Remember last week, the, the list, it, it, if we look at the list backwards from verse 5, it, it goes to the root and it builds out to the fruit acting out of, of the sin, right? Here again, we're going to see a building of action, one thing leading to the next. If you store up hard feelings and anger in your heart, eventually, the more you store up is going to come out in some sort of angry outburst. If you keep dwelling on your anger at another person, you're going to eventually develop an evil intent toward that person. You're going to have malice. You're going to want to hurt them. And as you let malice grow, you will speak evil of them. You will slander them. Your slander of another person may even be evil, abusive, obscene, harmful speech. You see the logical progression, can't you? Here's the problem. Everything on that list is improper for the people of God. We are to take those things off like taking off dirty clothes. We lay them aside. You should be no more willing to hurt another Christian with your words than you would be to put on filthy work clothes after a nice hot shower. You should be no more willing to cling to anger against a brother or sister in Christ than you should be to... Again, cling to some nasty garbage after you've cleaned up. That's what's being said here. And you might say, oh, oh, I can't help it, though. I'm just an angry person. My anger just builds up in me. I've got to let it out. But you know what? The Bible never once presents your anger as a steam pipe that has to have a release valve. That picture comes from secular psychology, not from Scripture. You and I are responsible for our emotions. We are responsible for what we let ourselves continue to feel. And you might say, Travis, how can you say that? The way I can say it's this. The Bible commands our emotions, time after time after time. Joy is commanded. Love is commanded. Letting go of anger is commanded. Don't you dare say, I don't have any control over my emotions because God commands them. We are to lay aside anger and angry speech. And you might say, how in the world, how in the world can I do that? If you're looking at Colossians 3 in your Bible, look up at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind, folks, on Christ. Consider His glory. Consider how much He has forgiven you. Consider how much your sin must have offended Christ. Consider what you deserve from Jesus and what He gave you instead. Think about the glories of heaven. Think about the eternity that we'll spend with God and watch as you set your mind on things above how your anger will melt away as you clothe yourself in soft and clean and perfect garments of the glory of Christ. Fight to let go of emotions that do not glorify Jesus. Let go of anger that is unrighteous and petty and not eternal in its significance. Let go of evil intentions that you have toward others, especially toward other believers. Do away with harmful speaking. Take off abusive and dirty speech. Speak only in words that glorify your Savior. Put on godly speech like you put on clean clothes. And please... Christians, hear me. I'm not saying that there's nothing worth being angry about. There are things that ought to make us mad. Brutality. Pure evil. Things like you saw in Paris this weekend. That ought to make you mad. Because it's evil. But most of the things that you and I cling to that are anger aren't like that. Most of the things are things that make us upset because they take away our feeling that we get to rule the world and be the center of the universe. Before we finish with this point, though, before we finish putting away things that we think or say that might harm others, there's one more thing that needs to come out of our mouths and out of our lives. Now, it starts the next verse. It's not part of the list, but it fits so well. Now, that list in verse 8, I want to tell you that took some study. I had to actually look up Greek words and definitions to get it right. But the first phrase in verse 9, I didn't need any Greek for. Nothing hard. Because you know what it says? Don't lie. That's it. Nothing special to it. What is to lie? To lie is to falsely represent the truth. It is not complicated because you know when you are trying to fool somebody with your words. You know when you're lying unless there's something really not going well mentally. If you are trying to get around telling the truth, you're trying to justify lying. So, take this command at face value. Christians are not supposed to lie. Why should we not lie? Because if we know Jesus, the Bible tells us we have taken off the old self. We have gotten out of our dirty clothes. We have renounced evil practices. And yes, lying is an evil practice. Let me ask you another question with that. Does God lie? What do you say? Yes or no? No, of course not, right? Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, God who does not lie. God who never lies. God doesn't lie. So then you guys tell me, who lies? If God doesn't lie, who does lie? Yes, he does. Right? If, if you're looking at, at John 
chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says to them, by the way, Jesus wasn't always gentle when he spoke. He says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, y'all, this isn't hard. Liars look like the devil. When we lie, and folks, let's be honest, we're all tempted to lie sometimes. We look like the devil and not like God. We're supposed to be transformed into the image of God, not Satan's. So we have to battle not to lie. Now, can we all admit that this is hard? If you say it's not, you're lying, by the way, then we have to have a whole other conversation. It is hard not to lie. You get that phone call where somebody wants you to donate to some cause. What's the easiest lying answer you can give? Oh, I already gave. If you didn't, don't say that. By the way, here's a little trick. Just, especially married folks, just say, look, my spouse and I, and you have to do this, make an agreement with your spouse, I'm never going to donate to anything over the phone. Then when someone calls, you say, my spouse and I agree, we're not donating to anything over the phone. <laughs> Boom. You're done. You don't have to lie. You forget a meeting. Isn't it easy to pretend that you never got the notice? Oh, I, I don't know what happened to that email. It must not have come through. Don't do that. Just say, look, I'm sorry, I forgot. Somebody asks you, do you like my new dress? <laughs> and you're not fond of seeing a grown woman wearing a dress two sizes too small. Just look at her and say, your hair looks nice. <laughs> it's hard not to lie. But we need to battle for ways to tell truth for the glory of Christ because it will look different than the rest of the world. So let's remember, here's a simple truth. Lying is an evil practice. It looks like the devil. Don't do it. Now, in all of what we've just seen, right, we are to be putting off all sorts of emotion, all sorts of actions that would hurt others or that will make us look like we're against God. We don't treasure anger. We don't let anger flash forth in wrath. We don't let our hearts turn against others so as to bear the malice. We don't speak falsely against others in slander. We don't speak obscenely or cruelly toward or about others. And we don't tell lies. These all have to be removed from our mouths or from our emotions for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of the good of the church because this really doesn't work inside the church. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, put off what makes you hurt others. That's the point of that text. Now let's go on to point number two. It'll happen faster than point one. Live transformed by Christ. Point number two, if you want to write it down, live transformed by Christ. Look at verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Can I ask you all something, just me and you? 
How moralistic did that last point seem? Didn't it feel rulesy? I mean, it seems full of rules. We saw six things we're not supposed to do. We heard no, 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 no. And many people think that this is the core of religion. Many people that the church is only against things. And they think the church is for nothing. And Paul, the writer of this letter, I believe knew that there's a danger in giving lists of moral commands. There's a danger in the list of no's. Because he knows, Paul knows, that it's easy for us to attempt to judge ourselves and our spirituality based on whether or not we obey the rules. I follow the rules. I don't lie. I'm a good person. And this is why Paul began with, and he keeps returning to, the concept of the true gospel, the true message of Jesus. Because that list of things that we're not supposed to do, which is a true list, is not the core of the gospel. The true message of Christianity is something bigger. See, the first two chapters of this letter, for those of you who weren't here for those, focused us on the fact that Jesus is superior to any spiritual being out there because he's God in the flesh, as we quoted in the Nicene Creed. Paul established for us that Jesus is the only one who can take the record of our sin against God and wipe it clean, and we all need that. He makes us brand new. And right here in this passage, right after giving us six no's, Paul quickly reminds us of the work of Christ as the foundational reason for why we want to live changed lives. Listen to me. Listen. You do not change to earn the favor of God. You change when you have already received the favor of God. That is huge to get right, church. Verses 9 and 10, Paul argues that the reason we should not live in anger and foul speech and all the rest is because we've taken off the old self with all of its sin and with all of its dirtiness and we've been clothed with the person of Christ. We've been made clean by Jesus if we're his and so it makes no sense for us to act like we've never met him. Instead, God in Christ renews us into the image of God. God changes us. Finally, God will change us into what he intended for us from the beginning. Do you understand that God made us for a purpose? Do you get that? That there's a reason you exist? God made you. God made me for the purpose of showing the world his greatness. Okay? That's why you exist. Something about you and your life is supposed to convince the universe that God's awesome. And all of us, every single one of us, has walked away from that design. We've, we've walked away. And we've walked into a new area where our lives hurt and where we have earned for ourselves the judgment of God. And we could never have found our way back to God's original plan. No matter what we try from the wrong side, we can't get back into the way God designed us. We can never make up for the original choice that we made when we walked away from God's plan. We could never earn our way back. 
we are hopeless and helpless and stuck. We could never become what God made us to be on our own. And that's why God sent Jesus. Jesus came to earth to rescue us. And I want to give you two thoughts on what that means real quick. If Jesus rescues you, he does two things. He forgives you and he restores you. First of all, we all need to be forgiven. We need to have our sins paid for. We need to have the punishment that we deserve lifted from us by God. And Jesus accomplished that. He accomplished it by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's how Jesus accomplishes forgiveness for everyone who will come to him. But we all also need restoration. See, we need God to move us from who we've become and allow us to experience again his original design for us. God wants you to get back into what he made you for. And only when we live as God designed for us to live can we find the true happiness and the true contentment of being what God made us to be. That's where you find joy. I want, I want to be happy. Does that surprise you? Do you? How many of you are sitting here thinking, no, I think I don't really want to be happy. I think just having a life that stinks really sounds good. A little more misery and unfulfillment and frustration would really be what I'm after. Please don't be that person, because that person's dumb. I want you to be happy. But you cannot be happy if you're living to yourself, not for the glory of God under the design of God. Do you get it? If you want a life that's full of its intended meaning, you have to live transformed by Jesus Christ. So first, if you've never been forgiven by Jesus Christ, you need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. So here's what you do. You admit that you have sinned before God. You've walked away from His design. You might have done it accidentally. You might have done it on purpose. You probably did it both ways. But admit it. God, I didn't live the way you wanted me to. I have not been what you shaped me to be. I have not been a perfect proof that you're perfect. None of us have. But then believe that Jesus can and he will rescue you because of his death and his resurrection. Jesus lived the perfection you could never live. He died to pay a price you could never pay. And he rose from the grave to prove that it was done. That's real historical fact. And decide that you would rather follow God's ways than live in control of your own life. And ask. Just ask Jesus Please forgive my sin and change my life. That is how we are rescued by Christ. And then live transformed by Jesus. Put off the things listed from the verses above. Don't put them off to earn the favor of God. Put them off to return your life to God's original design. Because God's design for you is the only way that you will ever be fulfilled and the only way that you'll ever have joy. Turn away from anger. Turn away from evil speech. Let go of lying. From last week, put off sexual immorality from verse 5. Turn, don't, don't turn from those things to earn your way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. 
God's favor is already there for everybody who is in Christ. So live a new life so that you can have joy and demonstrate the character and the goodness of God because this is the reason God made you in the first place. Last point for this morning. Point number three. Find your value in your new identity. Find your value in your new identity. Look at verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here we are, folks. We're being renewed. We're supposed to be putting on new life like new clothes. And once again, Paul, who loves to use lists in his teaching, gives us a list to ponder to bring out an important truth. So what is not going to be part of the life of a Christian? If you're a Christian, you're not going to look down on other people based on worldly class distinctions. Here's the list, right? In Christ, there's no difference in Jews and Greeks, circumcised and uncircumcised. If you were there during the first century of the church, you would know that people, some people acted as though Jewish-born Christians were somehow superior to Greek Christians. Those who, who followed Jewish laws were called the, circumci- the circumcision of the circumcised, while those who didn't follow Jewish laws were called the uncircumcised. Kind of looked at it as if they were a little dirtier. But God says there's no distinction anymore. There's no people group that's better than some other people group. Neither group outranks the other in the church. Then the next one he calls people barbarians. You ever heard that word before? How many of you have a picture of some gladiator right now, by the way? Stop that. The word barbarian actually meant a stupid or unsophisticated person. It was used by Greeks to apply to those who couldn't speak their language. By the way, having lived in another country uh, for a season of my life, I don't like it when people think just because you can't speak their language you're dumb. It's not nice. But that's what Greeks did. See, Greeks made fun of people who couldn't speak Greek. And they said all they can say is bar, 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 bar. And that's where the word barbarian came from, is bar, 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 bar. Greeks making fun of people that couldn't speak their language. And Scythians were the lowest class of barbarians, by the way. The Bible says those people don't even exist. The use of the term slave and free denote the differences in social classes, right? Workers versus employers, poor versus rich, uneducated versus educated. All of these are the kind of class distinctions that were in view here. And Paul says, the Bible says, God says, those distinctions do not fit the new life of a Christian. In Jesus' death, he united what used to be divided. In Jesus' death, he broke down all of our social and legalistic barriers. There is no place for an attitude of superiority. There is no room for a class system. You cannot look down on another person because of their color of skin, because of their nationality, because of their prior religious commitment before Christianity, because of their native language, because of their social status, because of their education, because of their lack of an education, their job, or any other social category. If they are a Christian, they are your equal. Christ is all and in all. Jesus is our everything. He lives in the heart of every Christian, no matter how poor, no matter how educated, no matter how light, no matter how dark in complexion. And so, Christian, we take off racism in every 
form. We take off class distinctions in every form. We lay them aside like nasty old garments and we treat Christians with equal respect because we're equal in the eyes of Christ. If you deny a Christian respect just because of their skin color or their social class, that is you denying the work of Jesus Christ who brought together Jew and Greek, slave and free. Now, Christians, here's the other side of the coin. You ready for the good side? Because that was a rough side, wasn't it? Christians, your value is in your new identity in Christ. If you're not allowed to look down on somebody else because of their social status, neither can you measure yourself by your social status. Isn't that good? It's Jesus who gives you your value, not anything else. How in the world do we do all this? How do we put off speech and attitudes that hurt people and cause division? How do we live transformed by Christ? How do we value ourselves and others only in our identity in Christ? How do we do that? First, if you want to get these things right, you have to be a genuine Christian. And that means that you have to recognize that you're a sinner before God and that you are helpless to fix that problem. You have to believe in Jesus, God's only Son who came to earth as a man who died to pay for the sins of God's children and who rose from the grave. You've got to be willing to let go of your sinful life and cry out to Jesus for mercy. But listen to me. If you will place all of your trust for all of your soul's eternity in the finished work of Jesus, he will save you, he will forgive you, he will make you new, and he will give you for the first time ever the ability to please God. So here's a question. Have you yielded your life? Have you yielded your very self to Jesus? Ask that question this morning. If you're not sure, if you want to talk about it, come catch me after the service. I would love to help you there. Secondly, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, center your life around the glory of Christ. Like planets that are held on course because of the gravity of the sun in the middle of the solar system, center your life around seeing and experiencing and showing off the glory of Jesus. The only thing that will help you to do away with the ugly things that God tells us to take off is a passionate commitment to doing what honors the Son of God. So it all comes back to the beginning of this chapter, folks. Set your mind on things above. Put off all the earthly things. You have been made clean, so don't put on dirty clothes again. Instead, Christians, dress in garments, actions, that glorify the person and work of Christ. Would you bow with me and pray? Father, there's so much here. Lord, you know as well as I do that we didn't choose this passage for today any more than anything. But this was your word for your church as we keep working through the book of the Bible. And yet, there's so much here that I'm sure hits us right between the eyes. 
Help us, Lord, to focus on your goodness and your glory. Help us to put off things that dishonor you. Help us to be transformed. Help us to find our value in Christ. God, help us to have joy as we walk into what you made us to be. Give us that, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen.